welcome to the season 3 of the India Energy R podcast. The India Energy R podcast explores the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities of India's energy transition through in-depth discussion on policies, financial markets, social movements and science. The podcast is hosted by energy transition researcher and author Dr. Sandeep Pai and senior energy and climate journalist Shreya Jai. The show is produced by multimedia journalist Tejas Dayananda Sagar. For years, multiple intergovernmental panel on climate change IPCC have relied on integrated assessment models or IAM modeling pathways to achieve global net zero targets. The IPCC reports and IAM pathways have become key drivers of government policy on keeping a lid on global warming in many countries. However, scholars from Global South have argued that IAMs have failed to incorporate the principles of equity and rights of developing countries while charting decarbonization pathways. For instance, questions have been raised about how it is fair to ask both the US and India to achieve a net zero by 2050, given US massive historical emissions. To discuss the issue of lack of equity in net zero pathways, and ways for designing equitable models for climate action we interviewed dr tejal kanitkar associate professor at national institute of advanced studies and dr rahul tongya senior fellow at the center for social and economic progress both tejal and rahul are india's leading scholars and thinkers on climate and energy policy and have decades of experience working in this area Welcome Tejal and Rahul thank you for joining us at the India Energy R here today um, we are looking forward to a very exciting conversation so thanks again for being here and we look forward to chat with you so before we uh, you know delve into the topic of the day uh, i just wanted to start the chat by letting our audience know who you are uh, but as greatness explains greatness itself i would like you both to introduce yourself uh, we'll start with tejal first tejal where are you from uh, what did you study how did you end up you know being in this sector researching all these very important and pertinent topic in if i may call the gamut the energy sector though your work goes much more beyond that so please start hi shreya thank you for uh, having me here uh, it's a pleasure to be on this uh, podcast I am a mechanical engineer by training. My PhD is in the in energy science and engineering. I work on issues of uh, energy, climate change, climate policy, etc. Energy modeling as well. I am currently associate professor at the National Institute of Advanced Studies in Bangalore. Uh, in terms of how I got here, I don't really remember what it was exactly, but uh, I, I I think I did my masters. Uh, from the center for energy efficiency and renewable energy at umass uh, that was the lab and when i went there the idea was to work on something more mundane like heat transfer related work uh, 
But uh, this was a time when the RE debate was picking up in the US as gas prices were increasing. And back home in India, power sector reforms had become a big political debate. So I remember finding both fascinating, and I think I must have thought it would be much more interesting to work in these interdisciplinary areas rather than some more street-jacketed, make engineering stuff. So I'm not sure if uh, that is what I really thought, uh, uh, or I'm simply in hindsight attributing some rationality to decisions that I took randomly. But anyway, so here I am, and uh, that's broadly my area encompasses energy and climate policy and using sort of quantitative models to look at uh, questions, particularly that are not taken into consideration in quantitative models, such as those of equity and justice, uh, when we think of projecting futures. Great. Thanks. Uh, Rahul, can we have you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, I'm Rahul Tonkia. I'm a long-time researcher and person interested in tough questions as much as answers on a range of issues related to technology and society. I'm a geek by heart. And that geekiness started with, of course, an undergrad degree in electrical engineering and followed by a PhD uh, in technology and policy, in engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon. And immediately after, this was back in 98, I joined the faculty at Carnegie Mellon. So I was on the faculty for many years, and I'm now an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon. My day job is with a nonprofit think tank called the Center for Social and Economic Progress, CSEP, based out of New Delhi. Uh, this was originally established as Brookings, India, where I lead energy and sustainability studies. I'm also a senior fellow non-resident with the Brookings Institution. I've been interested in many things. And quite frankly, energy is one of those interrelated things. You cannot use just one lens and expect to be able to find the truth because there's economics, behavior, regulation, policy, innovation, all of the above. So part of my interest on technology relate to smart grids and the use of innovation. So I'd help set up both the Government of India Smart Grid Task Force, where I was technical advisor, and I remain the founding advisor of the India Smart Grid Forum. So interested in many things and just am perpetually amazed by how fast many things are moving in this space. Rightly, you mentioned uh, that about the fast-moving changes that keep happening in this sector. So if I may ask uh, two of you, uh, if there is there's one thing or more than one thing currently that is holding your excitement or probably something that you're working on or looking forward to work on that is happening in the sector? One of the threads that my team and I are really digging into is issues of political economy. Because a lot of this at a domestic level for India, for example, falls back to the discoms or the distribution companies within the electricity sector. And these are not techno-economic problems and the same applies to climate change. Certainly, we want cheaper technology. Certainly, you want cheaper finance, more finance. But even if you had, quote unquote, unlimited amounts of money, utilizing it in an equitable manner, integrating it into societal needs. These are vastly more difficult challenges that, frankly, our systems are not set up for. They are often top-down. They are not as inclusive as even with good intentions we want them to be. So we are spending a lot of time trying to unpack or trying to align the top-down with the bottom-up. So if I'm uh, to come in, I think, uh, you know, as we, you know, the, the developments of the past few decades have shown quite clearly that uh, while there is some broad consensus that climate change is real and we need to really move as globally 
We need to move quickly to be able to deal with the problem. There has been serious lack of action from those capable of taking action. And uh, therefore, there has been an increasing uh, pressure uh, on the Global South, particularly in certain regions within the Global South, uh, more specifically, to take faster action. The implications of taking that action, given the large developmental deficits that still exist in this particular region, are quite severe. And uh, the attendant costs are very often ignored and dismissed in the larger narratives. There is some sort of value judgment often associated with the use of fossil fuels, uh, you know, almost as if uh, countries are unwilling to move away from fossil fuels. And these are not developed countries, but poorer countries, unwilling to move away from these because, uh, you know, they are, uh, they get uh, revenue from it or they are uh, in some form or the other addicted to it. But the larger questions of why countries depend on domestically available resources and what uh, it means, what just transitions or low carbon uh, development mean in the context of developing countries, particularly those with very, very high developmental deficits in sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia and Latin America. These are uh, questions that uh, I think are really important and get lost because it's almost taboo now to speak about differentiation. Yes, it's supposed to be a global community, a global problem, global collective action. It is a global collective action problem but we don't live in an equal world. So how do we take urgent climate action, necessary climate action in a highly differentiated and unequal world is, uh, is I think, an important question that I'm really interested in. And there are various aspects of this, both in terms of global policy as well as national domestic policy. Rahul spoke about uh, energy and uh, in the political economy of energy. So looking at uh, what does a low-carbon pathway mean for India in terms of the workforce involved uh, in the coal sector and the related sectors uh, to coal. What does it mean in terms of energy access, energy security? What does it mean for industrialization and modernization? Are these uh, no longer as uh, things that we can aspire to? Uh, you know, should we not aspire to modernization uh, and should we simply be happy with the kind of uh, you know, low energy levels that we are uh, at currently. This seems to be the global discourse and there is uh, no evidence that this is going to be a sustainable world in the future. So what does it mean to achieve both equitable and climate compatible futures? This is something that uh, I think uh, I am very interested in and looking at currently. Wonderful. So I was going to come to Rahul anyway, who has some points as well. Can I ask my question and then you can respond and bundle? No, you want to respond. Well, I just want to build upon something Tejal said, because this issue of a global conversation that starts with, we're all in this together. I think that is either wishful thinking or it misses a lot of the reality. And COVID was the best example to me, where people said worldwide, oh, we're all in this together. We're facing the same storm. Yeah, we're all in different boats. And so that reality is there for climate change, whether it's through energy, but also climate change's impact. The impacts are asymmetric. The expectations upon countries are asymmetric when you try and say, well, we all have to do whatever it takes to get to zero. But the implications of what that means from an equity perspective or a practicality perspective are glossed over by the rich, by the high emitters, the historically high emitters. So I sort of really want people to have deeper conversations whenever we hear this phrase, we're all in this together. 
Great. And I want to move you in that very, very direction and ask you very pointed questions. So let's start with Rahul first. So, uh, you know, whether it's the IPCC reports or the, which rely heavily on integrated assessment models, they really talk about like achieving a net zero by 2050 to meet the global climate targets. Is it fair that the United States also in those scenarios is achieving a net zero by 2050? India is also achieving 2050 in those same reports in the same year. Is is Shouldn't it be that some rich countries should achieve net zero earlier so it provides a bit more space, carbon space for developing countries? Uh, please, uh, please start with explaining the context of the IPCC report and why this, if I can call it unjust, you know, type of analysis are happening in this. Thank you. So, Forget fair, it's impractical because the poor still have to grow their energy services. Their energy consumption is so low. Just take per capita electricity consumption is orders, not one, but more than one order of magnitude lower in some countries. For example, especially in sub-Saharan Africa than in the Middle East or parts of Europe or the US. So that's the first challenge. And unfortunately, in the short run, growing energy services will mean more carbon emissions in the visible future for some time. Now, the IPCC report, people latched onto it for a couple of reasons. First was it really highlighted the urgency, which is good, which is very important. It got people excited to try and do something. But the unfortunate thing was the do something seemed to be around this net zero by 2050. And this became, in my view, very convenient for high emitters because if they actually zeroed by 2050, they would actually use up too much of the carbon space to actually stay within 1.5 degrees average temperature rise uh, with high probability. The second question is something that IPCC explicitly avoids, which is issues of distribution and equity. By definition, they say we don't get into that. So if you say hypothetically that the world must zero by 2050, which itself there's an issue with I'll come to in a second. Now, that could mean everybody zero by 2050. But anyone thinking through this problem would realize, well, it cannot mean that all countries zero. Someone who's got very, very, very low emissions cannot be expected not to grow them and develop for some time because they do have that carbon space or should have that carbon space available to them. Now, as you pointed out, the only way that the low emitters I don't want to use just the terms rich and poor. Let's base it around emissions, which could to some extent decouple a little bit. But low emitters can only have more carbon space left over from the global average if others accelerate their reduction to zero before 2050. Now, here are two things that are missing from the IPCC report that people don't discuss. We all latched on to this 2050. The first was we needed a 45% reduction by 2030 from 2010. Instead, unfortunately, emissions grew. And most of that growth came from countries that were above average emitters, using 2019 as a reference point pre-COVID. And that includes China. They are not a low emitter as much as they'd like to say that it's a developing country. And so that these countries actually grew emissions. The second thing that was there is that even if we zeroed by 2015, you just do simple arithmetic of the remaining carbon budget for 1.5, we would overshoot. 
And the only way that the IPCC allows that or models that to happen is through very extensive carbon dioxide removal, CDR. How extensive? So for 50 years in this century, 2050 till uh, 2100 in a median case, you're talking about 10 gigatons or a quarter of present emissions to be removed every year. So this problem is not from, oh my God, we are going to bust 1.5 because of future emissions, which people would put upon the foot of the poor or the developing countries. It's because of historical emissions and short-term emissions, which disproportionately come from the richer and certainly the high emissions countries. So any semblance of a reasonable carbon budget. Now you can say, how do we apportion the remaining carbon budget? The science is pretty clear on what is a remaining carbon budget. Apportionment is not a technical problem. That's a political economy negotiated stance even. And so under any reasonable semblance, and we need transparency in all of these assumptions, even if the rich zeroed by 2050, they will vastly emit more. So A, that squeezes the poor for what they have left, or it places more burden upon the future generations for carbon dioxide removal. And who benefits from present emissions? Well, those who are higher emitters, i.e. the richer. Thank you, Rahul. This is a great, uh, you know, overarching explanation of why there's equity. But Tejal, let's go a little bit deeper into the integrated assessment models, you know, which really form the basis of many of these IPCC reports. Help us explain, and I know you have written a lot on this, help us explain why you think these models are biased or, you know, they're not equitable. Like, I, I remember seeing all the graphs from your, some reports and your papers showing, like, you know, the energy demand, even in sub-Saharan Africa and many countries will remain very similar to what is doing. So help us zoom in a bit and explain how and uh, how integrated assessment models work what are the underlying economic and social assumptions that lead to future projections of inequity as well? Okay, I just want to pick up uh, in response to your question, uh, begin with what uh, Rahul said in terms of uh, how the IPCC achieves uh, the target, so 1.5, etc. Now, theoretically, the IPCC is only supposed to assess what is in the literature. But uh, there is, of course, uh, there are there's a considerable debate about how arm's length uh, away is the IPCC from, uh, especially in terms of the, the scenarios that are constructed, the models that are used and the scenarios that are then assessed. Who produces the scenarios and who assesses the scenarios? There's a significant overlap. And so therefore, you know, if you say the IPCC scenarios or how IPCC does this, they will immediately say, oh, the IPCC only assesses. We don't actually produce, but uh, the IPCC does call for, it uh, allows, there's a process of submission of scenarios, there's a vetting of scenarios. And so what you actually see in the global assessments and the numbers that are given to you in the summary for policymakers of the IPCC are, in fact, numbers, either, uh, you know, medians or ranges that come from a subset of the total scenarios that are actually out there in the literature. So the question is, where do these scenarios come from? And typically, the media picks up these numbers, etc., from the summary for policymakers, which is a summary of the much longer report. Okay? And uh, the longer report has many more numbers, but of course, these are all uh, sort of in the in interest of making them simpler to understand for policymakers or for laypersons. They are sort of presented in some using some statistical language, which is 
inappropriate to be used for something which is not really a statistical sample. The scenarios that are in the IPCC report are not a statistical sample. So, so you know, taking that one forty-three percent number or a forty-five percent number is incorrect in some sense, even as a representation of the scenarios. Now, these numbers come from large integrated assessment models, which typically have economic and energy models coupled with Earth system feedbacks, etc. Given how hard it has become to reach one point five degrees Celsius, it is no longer possible to do so only with changes in energy supply. So you now have a new category of models, which are vegetation models that have been coupled to these models, uh, which are supposed to capture the land use dynamics, et cetera. So that's where uh, your emissions from land use change would come from. Okay. Basically carbon dioxide removal. And these models are, while you're given the global results, they break the world down into regions and find optimal solutions across these regions. And there's a problem with each of the components of these integrated assessment. It's called an integrated assessment model because it integrates the energy system, the economic system, the earth system, etc. Let us take the easiest component first, which is the energy models. These are least cost optimization models. What that means is that the model will allocate the mitigation burden based on where it is the cheapest to mitigate. So if it is cheapest to get rid of coal in Asia versus oil and gas in North America, that is the result you will get. There will be no consideration of the distributional impacts, not even a consideration of costs, uh, let's say, as a fraction of income. So it's not the absolute cost of mitigation, but the cost in terms of as a, as a percentage, let's say, of GDP or something like that. That's not captured. Uh, the difference between absolute and relative costs, for example, are not considered. Uh, and so therefore, in short, no considerations, either explicit or implicit of equity. Uh, it is cheaper to mitigate through land use. So afforestation in the global south then uh, is cheaper than cutting gas use in North America uh, or Europe. You know? So it is, uh, in fact, uh, cheaper to uh, mitigate through also through continued poverty in the global south than by reducing oil use in Europe. And so this uh, it brings us to the next component, which is the economic models. These are basically general or partial equilibrium models that provide the values of GDP, consumption of goods and services, etc. In some models, they are exogenous, meaning they're simply plugged in from outside the models. And in some, they are endogenous uh, to the modeling framework itself. The problem with these sort of econometric models are multifold. So the first is that they typically constrain the models with business's usual trajectories, which implies uh, that uh, the assumption is that on the economic front, countries will not do anything differently either better or worse than they have in the past. Secondly, in the multi-regional models, they have to control international transfers and monetary flows somehow. Right? And so to prevent the issue of climate change from getting overwhelmed by the problem of underdevelopment, these models explicitly disallow transfers between regions. They freeze inequalities at current levels. They do this using different methods, the use of negation weights, etc. And the overall approach is that welfare is understood as the pursuit of some kind of Pareto optimality. Right? So everybody can become a little better off in absolute terms, but one region cannot become better off by some other region becoming worse. So in the model structure itself, it essentially disallows any form of distributive justice. So within an overall constraint on the carbon budget that Raoul has spoken about already, the carbon budget is so tight that there is no way in which the poor can achieve even medium levels of well-being, poor countries can achieve this, without there being any transfers. 
So the very tight constraint of atmospheric space on one side, the disallowing of any kind of transfers on the other side means, you know, eventually there is a constraint on energy growth itself that is imposed in the developing world in the global south. And this is imposed at much lower levels of absolute energy consumption. So a constraint on energy means a constraint on incomes, since these are inherently coupled. So if you look at 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees Celsius outcomes that are achieved in the IMs, this is not just the preservation of north-south inequality, but also keeping a large part of the developing world at minimum levels of consumption. So you achieve your 1.5 world by maintaining inequalities. And part of it is the model structure itself that is not geared to answering questions of distributive justice. And part of it is the way in which scenarios are constructed where those who are using these models to build scenarios are not even asking these questions of what happens to equity. And on the IPCC side, those who are assessing these scenarios are reluctant to say that there is no equity in the scenario. So they are reluctant to assess the scenarios on questions of equity. IPCC has no mandate to not look at equity. In fact, there are other sections of the IPCC that look at questions of equity. So in the assessment of scenarios, at least in the AR6, they could have said, you know, what is the equity, what is the equity content? How does this, uh, these, how do these scenarios fare on equity? And, and said that they fare badly, but this simply is not done. If you want a few examples, I have them too. I don't know whether I should give them now, but let me do so. You know, we consider GDP, for example, in most of the developing world, per capita GDP in 2050 is restricted to 9,000 to 28,000. You know, and South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa are at even lower levels. At uh, So South Asia is at around 18,000 and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa at $8,000 per person per year. Now, this is much lower than even the current levels, not just the current levels of developed countries as a whole, and much, much lower than the current per capita levels of the OECD countries. If you look at consumption, which is consumption of goods and services, which is a component of GDP, there is an even more stark uh, level of inequality. So Sub-Saharan Africa is at $3,000 uh, per person, whereas North America is at 59000 That's the degree of difference that you see. If you look at the carbon dioxide removal, again, something that Rahul referred to, about 65 to 85% of uh, this across different models is in developing countries, whereas fossil fuel use in per capita terms continues to remain high in developed countries. So essentially, because you're not looking at uh, optimization or you're not looking at equity as the key question, you're simply doing cost-based optimization. What you get is in continued fossil fuel use, not just before 2050, but even beyond 2050 in the developed countries. In fact, uh, uh, the Pacific OECD and North America continue to use coal in many of these scenarios, even beyond 2050, reaching net zero even much later than 2050. But this is compensated by carbon dioxide removal in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. Because this is the cheapest way to achieve 1.5. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, it means that you'll keep half the world poor in the process. I have a quick follow-up with Tejal and then we'll get to Rahul and ask more zoomed-in questions on coal and other stuff. So, I mean, one of the things that some IAM modelers have time and again said that this is not our job. To, we're not asking the question of equity here. We're just trying to build scenarios to show that we'll 
meet 1.5 or 2 degree targets so do you think that comment or that that set of you know comments are fair in that they don't need, they're not set out to achieve equity here they're set out to solve the climate question what is your response to that yeah it's actually bizarre to me that you can uh, you can solve the climate question without uh, addressing questions of equity and uh, and justice you know climate justice has been a central question from the beginning of the debate on climate change from the beginning of the negotiations but even from before that uh, so it's not something that you can simply be blind to or deaf to in the entire uh, discourse you know you can say that okay i will try and see what a cost optimal solution is but then you have to you have to say that okay this cost optimal solution is not equitable because both are equally policy relevant ipcc is supposed is uses the iim results uh, and the I- ipcc is supposed to produce policy relevant science now if policy relevance uh, means no equity then i don't know what policy we are really talking about when you actually go to the global negotiations under the unfccc there is a lot of push and this is ipcc is supposed to be an important input to the global stock take that's going to happen uh, this year and the global stock take is supposed to happen in light of equity and the best available science right both are major pillars of uh, what is supposed to inform the global stock take and so the ipcc scenarios don't fit the bill you can say that okay our job is to only construct scenarios of how is it that we can achieve 1.5 at the least cost but then they are not policy relevant in my opinion they are policy irrelevant so they should not be considered in the unfccc uh, gst process or comp decision i just want to build upon what tejal had said with an observation that equity and efficiency aren't the same but people who deal in this space a know it and yet aren't letting people who don't realize that understand that so the first thing is it should be more explicit and directly built in and if you now say that look here is something that is efficient then you have to make it clear that oh by the way we did or didn't do these certain things that were alternative choices that could be more equitable now efficiency itself first problem is it depends on so many assumptions we're talking about 10 20 no 30 50 70 years down the road if anyone wants to make bets on technology and what it costs good luck so we then get into economic side debates which are somewhat more well known on things like discount rates so how do you discount damages is a big deal because how it matters to different regions is very very different where you've got low development and you're facing more damages without having created the problem gdp itself is a problematic measure because of a bunch of reasons that economists sort of understand but are not baked into the models from what you should be optimizing for so putting it in more stark terms and where the modelers i think should be more explicit is ultimately what if i could have something that's a little bit less efficient let's assume we agree with the assumptions even if i lower the efficiency by a few percent and now say my equity is 10 times better don't you think most people would want that and accept that we do that all the time with simple product like insurance if i buy fire insurance my expected value is lower because i'm paying for that but my variance falls dramatically societally or amongst that pool because now i don't have to deal with the extreme outcomes so these trade offs between mean and variance are just one simplified example of things that are missing from the discourse because everyone just seems to say well here is the highest 
expected value. Therefore, that's all we need to be discussing. So if we have to zero by a particular time frame, there's almost infinite ways to do so, or practically speaking, there's many ways to do so. But which fuels, by which countries, by which subsets within those countries, and by when should all be on the table? Well, that's, that's a great point. I'd like to move a little forward from that and, you know, steer it, uh, you towards coal. No, it, it, it still happens to be one of the dirtiest fossil fuel. But most of the IPCC, IAM models that we have been talking about, talk about phasing out of coal. I believe in OECD countries by 2030 and non-OECD countries by 2040. Don't you think it is contentious? Uh, yes, no, and why? I think this is a great example of the implication of current models. Um, I think a few numbers or context may be useful for everyone. Coal is absolutely dirty per kilogram or per kilowatt hour that you produce electricity, for example. But you also have to look at total volumes, both per capita and absolute. In an absolute sense, oil and gas are 25% more emissions than coal. And most of the oil and gas is disproportionately amongst richer countries and higher total emissions countries, China being the exception, which is coal heavy. Now, China and India, this is also another thing when people talk about coal. India is the number two coal consumer in the world. 10%, 2019 numbers pre-COVID. When we adjust for the coal quality, because India's coal quality is poor, so a lot of it is ash, bad for local air pollution, but not as bad for emissions of CO2. India is about one-sixth of the world population, and it's 10% of global coal. China is also one-sixth of the world's population approximately, and it's half the world's coal. So just saying coal itself doesn't tell you the whole story. So now you've got poorer countries that may use some amount of coal, but they use it because that's what they have. If you go to India or Vietnam, you go to other countries and say, stop coal, then the question becomes, well, sure, what's the alternative? Where is the cheap gas? For example, India has tried and not achieved gas if you believe natural gas is a bridge fuel. So instead of saying coal versus oil and gas, we should be trying to limit total emissions and total fossil fuel related to that. So if we look at now not just absolute, but relative emissions, which are also important, Germany and the United States still use multiple times more coal than India does, especially after correcting for coal quality. Uh, Greg Mutit and his colleagues uh, have a great study out in Nature Climate Change saying that the expected reduction rate out of getting away from coal is far higher than any change away of any electricity or fossil fuel source for any country in the world. So is it too ambitious is the first question. Well, addressing climate change needs us to be ambitious. But what he doesn't point out in his paper is that when most countries took X years to go away from a particular source, let's say 90% reduction or 100% reduction, they didn't move to renewables. They moved typically towards natural gas. So countries that were heavy on oil moved towards natural gas um, or they moved away from coal towards natural gas, which is what the UK and the US have done. So it's not that they went fully green. They were greener, but that's not nearly enough because of the high volumes that they use. Rigel, you want to come in? Yeah, it's just a short point that this and Rahul brought this up in terms of the difference between air pollution and uh, climate change. This entire uh, idea of a dirty fuel or the dirtiest fuel, right? It, it comes from the discourse on pollution 
largely and uh, it's a it's a very different uh, issue when it comes to climate change we are talking about co2 as the main driver of climate change in fact aerosols uh, would uh, uh, mask the warming uh, you have a reduction in uh, european uh, pollution in fact uh, leading to higher levels of warming total warming over the last century if you actually burn coal efficiently and well you 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 get co2 you get uh, you get global warming but you don't get uh, pollution right so in that sense uh, i am a little uncomfortable about classifying fuels as less dirty more dirty what are we talking about in what context are we talking about uh, a coal power plant uh, in a remote area with low uh, levels of population density with stack heights of over 275 meters with all the air pollution you know electrostatic precipitators and uh, all kinds of other equipment uh, to deal with the ash uh, and particulate matter uh, installed just because it causes co2 should it be a problem for india or should india look at uh, its air pollution issues which are far more serious direct impacts uh, that uh, that are uh, quite severe for its population and immediately something that national policy must address and can solve mitigation is something that uh, should be the first thing on the agenda for rich countries that are capable of undertaking the action as well as have other resources to substitute if they move away from coal whereas for india while total coal consumption there is no doubt that it has to go down right we have to but we have to manage to juggle multiple priorities we've already spoken of developmental requirements but also in terms of what do we what is necessary for air pollution development climate change how do we juggle these three together and so discourses of uh, you know clean fuel dirty fuel coal versus oil versus gas uh, in are not very helpful when it comes to you know framing the issue uh, especially because we are juggling with issues of both air pollution as well as climate change Th- that was a, a brilliant point uh, so i as a layman and an observer uh, rather not just layman um, would want to understand then what kind of planning then should india have if it were to realistically phase out coal if they do plan to phase out coal completely what kind of plan are we looking at what, uh, should there be a deadline a strict deadline for it how do you think the country should be doing and this question is to you know both of you well i mean this is a question that cat asked in many settings like what are the right instruments to get us on the right path as quickly as possible and there's a bit of practicality to having a deadline because it really forces action and it really focuses finance and so forth but at the end of the day i believe that we need better frameworks than we need deadlines per se if you get your frameworks right you will then accelerate the alternatives to coal So why aren't we scaling up RE? So one of the questions in our research has shown is that renewable energy is not just green but it's also cheap. Wind and solar are so cheap that we should be adding vastly more wind and solar even in a variable mode. So VRE, variable RE means when the wind blows, when the sun shines. You don't even need storage, you'll still use it and there's immense value for that. At some point you will also need storage. but we're not there yet we're not even close to that point in india and yet we are not adding as much vre as is economically optimal and so those are the challenges that need to be worried about as opposed to a ban on coal per se and in fact if we're behind schedule on our re targets 
unfortunately, the backstop that India has is coal. Now, there are three particular sort of framings I want to suggest. The first, we should worry uh, less about capacity of coal power plants and more on its usage. So even having a coal power plant that is rarely used, that's seasonal and hopefully we clean it up, then it's not as big a deal under our cumulative emissions trajectory sort of uh, arithmetic. The second, our objective really should be to slow down the growth of coal. That's where high wind and solar really matter. Then plateau it. A hard deadline may be artificial. Let's actually get action that's even quicker. Um, grow our RE, for example, and also clean up the existing coal plants that need it. And then to worry about phasing it out or have definitions of zero coal by when. Here, we're also typically talking about the power sector where our pathways are well known. It's much harder for industrial uses of coal, uh, which uh, especially cement and then steel to some extent, green hydrogen is being talked about, which is very expensive. My view based on analysis is that if it's expensive, well, if it's cheap, then the market will go do it anyways. Anytime you say I have a deadline or I have a mandate, well, you're implicitly saying, well, it's not quite market ready. That's not the equilibrium that the market would choose. So now if it is expensive, then let the rich pay that premium. Let the developed countries develop these technologies, be it storage or green hydrogen or so many others, and let those then be cheaply and easily available and accessible to the global south uh, without it becoming yet another dependency for technology or for finance. And then, of course, I've hinted at this before, what coal we do use should be as clean as possible and as efficient as possible. So local air pollution is just one part of it. We also need our coal power plants to be flexible. By that, what I mean is RE and coal will coexist in the visible future. So you need power plants that can go up and down in their output. They can lower their output in the middle of the day. Very few technology designs assume that you will turn on and off a coal plant every day based on solar in the midday because that's inefficient and problematic technologically. But you can at least make them more nimble and more responsive than you have today. Do you want to add on that? Yeah, I think we really need a deadline for uh, achieving zero hunger. We need a deadline for achieving zero malnutrition. Uh, you know, universal housing uh, availability, no homelessness. We need a deadline for achieving full employment, uh, no unemployment. We need deadlines for all of these things uh, much before we actually need a deadline for uh, determining, you know, fossil fuel phase out or uh, coal phase out and things like that. Because whatever it is, our energy choices will depend on how quickly we meet our developmental requirements. Uh, and how uh, you know well we can sustain those uh, those achievements if at all we end up uh, achieving all of these deadlines. This entire idea that we can set some goals for climate change mitigation, we can set goals for fossil fuel phase out, whereas we can have no goals for key and fundamental developmental requirements in the country. I think uh, it is is a bit of a contradiction for me. So I, I'm not, uh, I agree with Rahul that I don't think uh, a deadline for uh, uh, coal phase out, etc. is, uh, you know, is something that uh, is supportable given the conditions that uh, India is dealing with uh, currently. Does that mean that, uh, you know, India does nothing? Of course not. 
you know, there's no uh, question anymore of uh, hiding behind inaction or hiding behind questions of inequity. Those those uh, days uh, uh, are uh, long gone. Equity is a urgent requirement, in fact, to meet uh, uh, climate change goals. It's not something that it's it, it's something that it's a positive value that you aspire to. It's not some uh, uh, you know she you know there was an old. Uh, Somebody had said this, I think that was uh, Lavanya who had said that, you know, India should use uh, uh, equity as a sword and not a shield. But I think it's uh, neither a sword nor a shield. It is, in fact, uh, something that one must aspire to, given how urgent the problem of climate change is. Meeting equity has become, in fact, even more urgent, uh, not less urgent. And that means meeting our developmental requirements. In terms of uh, renewable energy, of course, I mean, Rahul has said quite a bit. I think uh, there are serious questions of uh, managing, balancing the grid. Currently, the grid serves as uh, the battery for a lot of the VRE. Uh, what happens when you actually exceed a certain level uh, of renewable energy capacity? Is it going to be easy? We have some analysis for the southern region, which has shown that uh, a higher intake of uh, more costlier uh, renewable energy contracts that were signed earlier when it wasn't uh, the rates of uh, unit costs of renewable energy was not, were not as low as they are today, have led to much higher gaps in finance or much higher levels of energy costs for the, re for the southern states. We've done this analysis for four of the major southern states uh, in India. And we found that it is uh, it's quite considerable, over 15,000 uh, crores of rupees every year that uh, states are paying just in, uh, to be able to absorb renewable energy when there is cheaper coal-based power available. They have to because there are non-curtailment policies in place to be able to absorb renewable energy. So there are serious attendant costs. Unless we talk about what these attendant costs are, how we're going to deal with them, just setting targets in terms of a phase-out or in terms of, uh, uh, you know, even it, in terms of adding no new coal, there seems to be a lot of discussion in the media about India saying that we will uh, add no new coal. Are we, are we really there yet to make these kinds of uh, announcements, to make these kinds of decisions? Have we taken stock of what, it, what are the requirements of energy for uh, meet, meeting, let's say, our manufacturing targets? You want 25% of your GDP to come from manufacturing. Where is it going to come from? Uh, if not, uh, where is it? what is it going to be driven by, if not by coal? So the, these are questions that need to be addressed before setting targets. So I just want to uh, point out that they should, we should think about targets in two ways. One are directional targets, maybe aspirational targets, before we come to hard targets. Hard targets should be related to things where either you don't accept alternatives or there are no alternatives, like people's health, people's livelihoods. These things we should have harder targets on for development, for example. But where you're saying that, well, maybe I should do this much of X and that much of Y, well, maybe you would have a different mix of technologies that's better. That's what people demand or what the equilibrium comes at. I think I want to emphasize that while people lament that RE isn't growing as fast as it is in India, we have to give it context from where it was just a few years ago to our great growth rates now are much higher than ever before. And when you normalize for the size of our grid compared to China, which is, of course, in a different league in both size of grid and growth every year of clean tech, but also the United States, we're actually doing pretty well. And more than that, our ambitions are even more ambitious than the official targets of China. 
Now, China, of course, is a unique case. I jokingly call them both the dirtiest and the cleanest country on earth because they're adding as much solar as the rest of the world put together. But they're still not ending their coal or, head, you know, they, they still have some flexibility in how they turn greener. And I think that's the approach that makes the most sense. It's a portfolio problem. It's not something that we should look at through a silo lens. Okay, I, I have follow-ups from both of you, but let's start with, I mean, it's kind of similar. The question will actually speak to both of your answers. So uh, so let's start with Rahul. My question uh, is, you talked about how using cleaner coal in cleaner coal power plants. And if I understand correctly, you also said that, you know, renewables are not there yet to, to start to replace coal. Even in the VRE sense, we can add a lot more renewables uh, and things like that. So my question to you is, if we clean up coal for for air pollution as much as possible for other, uh, you know, other local issues, do you think the coal power will become more expensive? And since renewables is not ready yet, overall cost of power for the country will be higher. So in general, typically, cleaning up something existing as opposed to leapfrogging is often expensive, but that's a cost we're willing to bear because you pay for it somewhere else. You pay for it through livelihoods or health and uh, reduced GDP elsewhere. So with pollution, it's a classic externality. The people who benefit from energy services are typically not the ones who bear the brunt. And the most extreme example of that is not coal. It's actually dams. Historically, dams have created the most displacement in India. Uh, in terms of winners and losers. And really, winners and losers is what climate change is all about. So are we looking at higher prices? To some extent, yes. We can partially offset that with cheaper renewables for parts of the day. But whenever somebody tells me, oh, look, solar is only 2 or 2.3 rupees a kilowatt hour, I typically ask, and what's solar's price at 8 p.m.? I agree with uh, Raoul completely. There, are, there is a lot of discussion about how cheap solar has become. And it's actually fantastic that renewable energy has become, uh, solar specifically, has become uh, much cheaper than we had anticipated a decade back. Uh, part of it is also because of uh, extremely high deployment rates across the developing world. Uh, you know, India, China have been uh, responsible for, uh, well, you know, getting the costs down along with uh, other countries with the very fast deployment rates. But... Uh, there is still a challenge which doesn't go away. And, uh, you know, if you speak to grid operators, economists typically tend to talk about uh, issues of uh, costs as if they are removed from uh, the technical challenges of uh, making sure that electricity goes from the, you know, as where it, from where it is produced, reaches to where it is actually used. And those challenges are quite significant. Uh, you need a much stronger transmission and distribution network to be able to handle uh, Infirmant resources. There are issues of grid stability and balancing. When you have large amounts of renewable coming in and going out, uh, you have questions of where it is, even if you're going to use it in the day, uh, solar energy when it's available with lower levels of storage, where are you going to, uh, which, which uh, sectors are you going to uh, move? And there's a lot of discussion about moving agricultural consumption uh, to the afternoon. Now, afternoon, when uh, levels of uh, solar radiation are the highest, uh, the levels of uh, evapotranspiration are also the highest. So, if you 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 know, will you have another trade-off in terms of uh, a higher use of water, for example? 
some of these uh, we know the answers to some of the questions we do not know the answers to and that's normal I and mean, that's the course of science it's the course of how we learn we learn through practice we might find that something else works better and that is something that we have to do but uh, it, it, it you know to say that the entire idea that it has somehow become easy because solar bids are now at two rupees and two and a half rupees is actually missing I think 75 percent of the story it's great that 25% of the story is great, that costs are reduced. But reduced costs, higher deployment, means the cost of storage has to be included in uh, understanding this. And the cost of strengthening your grid have, has to be included in uh, understanding of the total costs of uh, renewable energy. The latest uh, bid for, uh, sto for battery storage was 10 rupees a kilowatt hour in India. So where, what are we talking about in terms of grid parity? Something that we really have to question. Uh, Thank you, Tejal, for saying that great point that Tejal raised. And, and it is so rare for someone to, you know, say something beyond this headline of that solar is the cheapest in this country. That's 1.99. There were celebrations across the sector. But uh, good uh, of you so, to point out this very important thing that we are not factoring so many costs of which which we in the uh, in the scientific parlance would call it grid parity or the cost that the customer will pay for procuring solar or wind power there is grid cost there is battery which is yet to be factored in as you rightly pointed out 10 rupees uh, battery storage then round the clock power would also come at a cost because currently we are trying to blend coal with Solar and wind to give round-the-clock power, that has its own cost. Uh, but, you know, Rahul, this question is is for you. Uh, let's take forward what Tejal said. Uh, is renewable energy an actuality still not cheaper than coal power when we factor in all these costs, when we factor in how renewable would be running 24-7? And uh, obviously, the cost over the lifetime of that particular project. So, uh, can you explain us which part is uh, true and uh, just explain the whole economics of it, please? I think people get it when we sort of lay out that what is the denominator or the metric we're using? Most people think of electricity as rupees per kilowatt hour or rupees per unit. Now, with that lens, solar and even wind to some extent are pretty darn cheap. Two, two and change, two rupees a kilowatt hour. But that is only true when it's available. So in India, wind is very seasonal for most of India. It's monsoon related. Solar, of course, is a well-known output, which depends on sunlight. So evenings gets lower till the point it drops off to zero. Now, the question then becomes, what else do you use? Traditionally, that was fossil fuel. Now people are saying, let's use storage technologies, which could include batteries or pumped hydro. We are not doing nearly enough, for example, on shifting load towards matching green sources. Solar pump sets are one thing, but as Tejal pointed out, they have other issues, uh, not just evaporation, but also how it's absorbed for the crop. Uh, or if you do continuous pumping of water, what that may do to uh, efficiency of pump sets. Th those are all second order problems in some ways. We run a website called carbontracker.in, not carbontracker.org, no relation. But on this website, anyone can go play with real-time data of what is India's fuel mix every five minutes to meet demand. And there's historical data, analytics, and things for people to play with. And what we see is 
renewables have a very well-known profile. And as Tejal pointed out, storage is yet expensive. We are adding it more like test cases. And very few people are sort of saying, well, let's just get so storage cheap enough. Because even when storage falls in cost by 50 to 70%, it is still expensive depending on how much you need. The very good news is you don't need any storage at all. What I'm most interested in is why don't we grow wind and solar as much and, and as fast as we can to the point where we actually then have to worry about storage. We're not there yet. So that is the first order of business. Meanwhile, let's do some learning. Let's put out storage. But batteries, to me, have other value than time shifting. They are good for ancillary services, frequency support, ramping, other things that the grid needs, not whole scale time shifting. Now, how much will we need later on? Based on some carbon tracker analysis, in 2019, about 35% of our demand had a shape profile that matched renewables. So in the future, once we shift more load to align with solar, once we get smart grids, smart meters are a work in progress, then there's no reason we shouldn't be at 40 to 50% of our demand could align directly. Maybe another 10% of our demand could be smarter and intermittent. Instead of having intermittent supply, why not have intermittent demand to match it? But you still need up to 50% easily to go through a battery. So if you're blending that, then you can see where the costs add up. So that 10 rupee number that Tejal talked about was excluding the renewables that go in and out of the battery and the transmission that goes into it. So here's the challenge today. For things like wind and solar, levelized cost of energy, that's a fancy term used for normalized costs over a lifetime, where you discount future to the present. Because if I'm trying to compare coal and solar, coal has fuel whose price is expected to go up over time. While with solar, you pay once as a capital investment and then that's it. So how do you compare them? So there's a technique called levelization to try and make things comparable. Now, levelization has three problems. Um, other than the fact that you have to assume you know what the future is going to look like, whether it's coal prices or performance of your wind and solar. What if climate patterns change? Wind is already facing a bit of that risk. So is hydro. Second problem is it ignores system level costs. So transmission is one requirement. Wind is especially location specific. Solar less so, but still to a large extent. And then there are grid level impacts where you have to back down your coal in the middle of the day or something else. Coal has an efficiency penalty when it operates at part load. We are not compensating for that enough in current pricing norms, for example. And then there would be a capital investment if you actually needed to make your existing coal fleet ultra flexible, which is probably worth doing when you do the math, but someone's got to pay for it. Renewables today are getting the benefit um, of several types of explicit and implicit subsidy. For household solar, rooftop solar, there's a 30% capital subsidy available. For renewables, they have a waiver on interstate transmission charges. So these could be worth 50 pesos per kilowatt hour for long distance transmission or perhaps more. And in contrast, coal power plants, yes, they have huge externalities of pollution, but they also pay not just assess and other benefits and taxes, they also pay heavily to keeping the railways afloat because coal is overpaying 
for underpaying passengers. This is well documented. And literally, the Indian Railways, India's largest civilian employer, is afloat because of this equilibrium. The third and last problem with these LCOE calculations is they make an assumption of duty cycle that you will, for example, use a battery every day 90% in full. And then this is your cost. So that 10 rupee number, Tejal, is typically an LCOE type calculation, which just assumes you're going to use a battery every day. But you don't need a battery every day. What about the low demand monsoon period, which is also windy and it's bright in that day? Then you would meet all your demand for more of the day without needing any storage at all. So then what's the value of that storage? The value of that storage drops only to its energy provision and not capacity. There's no capacity value. So these are the sorts of reframings we need to do. We need a systems approach to pricing both renewables, pricing coal, pricing all of the above. Probably the single biggest thing I would ask policymakers and planners is to stop using LCOE and introduce time of day pricing that reflects grid condition. It reflects the fact that in the middle of the day, I have cheap solar. So that's when I want to make sure my EVs plug in. That's when I want to make sure more of my consumption occurs. But today you have no signals for that. You have no incentives. And we're adding more and more solar midday. We will hit a surplus of solar, not today, but within a couple of years. And then what? Once you hit surplus RE, the value of that RE drops to zero. You will be curtailing it. And to say, oh, I'll just put it through a battery. Well, that's expensive. In addition to a systems approach, we our other biggest challenge is scale. We need to grow RE at a faster pace than anyone thought imaginable. And here's the challenge. Our modeling, and we have a paper on this, uh, it's on our CSEP website on grid in 2030, that observes that even if you achieve 450 gigawatts of RE by 2030, this incremental RE will not be enough to meet incremental demand. This is purely on a kilowatt hour or energy basis. We are ignoring time of day aspects for this. Just on energy, we still need something else. And even with planned hydro growth and nuclear growth as projected or estimated, that won't be enough. So is are we then saying that we're not quite ready to plateau our coal? That's one interpretation, yes. Just a very small point to what Travel said there the, uh, about the LCOE calculations. Uh, taking it back to the IPCC, it has a graph that is used in all IPCC outreach uh, events and is very popular in the media about falling rates of uh, of uh, both the renewable energy and uh, battery storage. But this is not battery storage. This is batteries for EVs in that particular graph of the IPCC. The disclaimers about the fact that this doesn't include grid integration costs or storage costs, etc., are hidden somewhere in the panel of that uh, figure. So when you actually look at those costs, those are uh, very, those are only a fraction of the total costs. So just to sort of link it back to the entire question of, uh, you know, there has to be some serious, uh, uh, I think, review of how is it that we present the IPCC is supposed to represent the best available science. What does it mean to assess some of these technical issues and present them in a balanced manner, not in service of some larger narrative of urgency, but actually provide evidence-based inputs to policymakers so that they can take decisions based on this information? So the IPCC report, and I've reviewed some of them at the invitation, 
they focus on data that are available, maybe, and I don't want to get into that, are they projecting an urgency or not? But most references cite Bloomberg New Energy Foundation, BNEF data on on lithium price survey. The problem is there's another survey that's not public. This one is public, which includes the grid costs for large-scale grid storage through lithium-ion batteries. And those costs are 2.5 times larger than these costs. Very few people talk about that. We have a paper, hopefully in a few weeks, it'll be out that actually goes into this. Great. We'll have to have you back to talk about that. Uh, but I do want to uh, I do want to take this conversation back to the IPCC scenarios and the integrated assessment models. Uh, so, explain to me how one can start creating equity scenarios that assigns you know historic responsibility and energy abundance for developing countries. Maybe we'll start with Tejas this time and then go to Rahul on this. Yeah, I think the first thing about constructing alternatives is not just constructing alternative scenarios. I think we need to start uh, talking about alternative frameworks, alternative models, right? We need to move away. There is no reason uh, for why we should remain wedded to the integrated assessment models or the current variety. You see very little difference in the results that they produce. So if you have 20 models producing the same results, and you will add another, uh, you know, uh, 150 or uh, 200 or even a thousand scenarios for the same models and get the same results. So I think that tells us quite clearly that we need to move to different frameworks that can foreground these questions of equity. Right. Can we talk about uh, looking at uh, uh, issues of uh, converging uh, energy use? What happens if you are trying to meet energy equity? What happens if we are uh, trying to, let's say, uh, increase energy requirements? Invert the problem. Don't talk about how, you know, what is what is going to be possible given current rates of uh, development. Start talking about aspirational targets for energy consumption, thresholds uh, that are required to achieve uh, well-being. And this is something that is uh, there in the literature. So, you know, you have these decent living standards, etc. However, you know, there is a, a lot of, in, in my view, that literature is very limited in the sense that while the qualitative discussion talks about, you know, uh, the capabilities approach, it talks about uh, freedoms and things like that. When it comes to quantifying what it means to achieve well-being, it is basically just poverty alleviation. It is minimum standards of calorific intake. It is minimum levels of water availability, you know. So if we are actually saying that the world and the poorer parts of the world will aspire to better levels of well-being, and these might not be the levels of consumption of uh, the OECD countries today, but what is required to achieve, uh, you know, universal, all the things that I said earlier, you know, universal uh, housing, universal health care, uh, a decent amount of access to all kinds of different amenities that a lot of people in the global north take uh, for granted. Start with that question. How is it that we will achieve those aspirations? What is it? Uh, what is required in terms of transfers, either in terms of financial transfers or technology, technology transfers to be able to achieve this? Without those, what is it? What are the options that are available to developing countries? How, uh, you know, what are the domestic resources? So those countries that do not have gas, 
If they don't have these uh, other options, they will continue to use coal, for example. It's possible to quantify in a meeting energy equity as well as climate equity together in a, uh, in a unified framework. And, you know, we've done some work uh, uh, on that and hopefully we'll be able to publish it soon as well. But uh, it's not simply a matter of opinion and something that is uh, that is that cannot be quantified. It is definitely something that can be put into numbers. Of course, those numbers are subject to change. There's no just like the numbers in the IMs uh, that uh, that that are produced are subject to change and are subject to a lot of uncertainties. So are numbers from any other framework. But here, the starting point itself is different. I do not begin. From trying uh, by trying to uh, sort of simply project an unequal past and present into the future, I start by trying to achieve an equitable future and try to see how is it possible to achieve this while still achieving climate compatibility at the same time. And if it if I find, for example, that it's not possible to achieve 1.5 and equity at the same time, I think as a uh, uh, you know, as uh, scientists and as researchers, one must be frank about this. One must be honest about this. To say that, you know, 1.5 is such a tight constraint that the uh, at the rates at which uh, mitigation is required, equity is not going to be possible. The kind of equity you're talking about is not going to be possible. At least say that much. Right? I'm saying that this is, uh, you know, that this is what I mean by sort of different starting points. Uh, just another issue is very clearly of the global carbon budget. I think that uh, is a very uh, you know clear scientific uh, result, and we spoke about that in uh, in an earlier segment. That uh, we we do know what the total carbon budget is. We know the degree to which it has been overused, uh, or uh, the fair the fair shares of developed countries have been overconsumed. We know what is remaining. And so how is it that we apportion it using different parameters of capacity and responsibility is something that is fairly straightforward. Burden sharing literature is as old as the problem of climate change itself. Uh, there are newer ways in which you can construct it. So it's not something that uh, uh, that we need to necessarily, th- you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are various approaches out there. How is it that we can integrate these approaches to the more complex issues of energy transitions is something that uh, we must see. And it is possible to see. But in my opinion, we will have to move away from the IM framework to be able to do so. Rahul, do you want to add something? I think we need a lot of change. I mean, obviously, climate change needs a lot of change. But in the modeling and analysis, Tejal has listed a few points. And I'll start with this observation that IAMs, integrated assessment models, are almost black boxes to most people, and they're exceedingly complex. So most people ignore things that aren't in their silo, and they miss the implications of something far away um, that really, really matters for equity or even for the plausibility of the outcome. Because if anything is implausible, we're going to get things that are just good on paper but never get achieved. People have to want whatever we tell them that they should be doing. And I'm a strong believer in soft paternalism. You make it easy for people to do the right thing 
and they'll go do it. In India, LED bulbs took over CFL, which took over incandescent, partly with some government support and policies, including standardization and large volume bidding and things that the government did. Part was just manufacturing improvement, but ultimately it was also about consumers saying, okay, I'm willing to pay the higher capital costs for something that will last me much longer and save me money over time. So if we have solutions that look good, sound good, and feel good to people, we'll go do it. That's the ecosystem that we need to unleash worldwide so that people don't treat climate change just as a burden. Yes, it will involve change, but not all of that change need to be as painful necessarily. From a modeling perspective, uh, instead of just changing your assumptions, which is one starting point, what about, so today's IAMs are typically saying, here's my constraint on carbon, what's my lowest cost solution? What if I say I want the highest energy or highest development and then work out what's the lowest carbon and or lowest cost? So it's a multidimensional, multi-attribute utility analysis problem that has no optimization. What you actually come up with is a frontier or a trade-off graph or a trade-off curve that then lets you choose, well, we can actually be lower carbon and high equity, oh, but it's going to cost more. So then that's a very different conversation. Cost more from whom? We, in theory, have enough money in the world. It's about allocating that money. And that's the conversation that's missing because we right now have an economic system geared towards wealth accumulation to the highest 0.1% and then the 1%. It's actually going in the reverse direction in a lot of the world. That's the conversation that's missing. And I find it puzzling that we're relying on these economic frameworks to solve the equity issue in climate change. Uh, don't, don't see it happening. What we also can do within the existing sort of frameworks is, of course, make equity explicit, make it a direct input to your models, have different assumption ranges, remove the constraints on regional and uh, intergenerational transfers as well. It's not just interregional. We have to fix our accounting of carbon and impact and burden. Uh, production versus consumption accounting for climate change is just one example. UK is the greenest G20 country in its reduction in, from 1990. Even that reduction was much less than the 3% you need per annum to zero in 30 years, 3.33%. But from 1990, it had only 10% of emissions that were imported and not accounted for in national accounts, embedded or trade emissions. It's now 43% or so by 2019, 42%. For a country like Switzerland, it's 250% is its embedded emissions. So these are things that we miss in a lot of these accounting. I'm not even touching with the 10-foot pole the problems with accounting of GDP. So the last sort of recommendation I would have is we should look at models and create the feedback loops to come back to this issue of how people behave. And by that, I mean instruments. What are the instruments that we're talking about? You know, the favorite one of many economists is carbon pricing. And I don't believe carbon pricing will solve this problem because in the worst case, where someone's just going to be paying a lot, but it won't actually reduce your emissions enough. If you do the math for India, there is a coal cess. 400 rupees a ton coal. That translates to just over $3 a ton CO2-ish, depending on the exchange rate. But if you look at the total taxes that petrol and diesel pay, it's well over $100 a ton CO2. What are your alternatives? 
So when we talk about carbon pricing, the problem of equity is several fold. The first is, I mean, if you look at people talking about climate uh, offset markets, one of the favorite tools of a large swath of society is, well, we'll just use market instruments to unleash efficiency. And why I get very worried is, uh, and there's some nice uh, studies by Bloomberg and others, most of these offsets are dodgy, especially the land-based offsets. They're just dodgy. All of the financiers tell me, well, all carbon is equal. Ergo, let's get rid of the cheapest carbon. Tejal has already pointed about that a lot of that burden just means it's falling upon the poor. But this also ignores historical. If you agree that all carbon is equal, then I want to price your historical carbon as well, because that's still out there in the atmosphere. And I'm still waiting, but not holding my breath for high emissions, richer countries to give trillions of dollars of payment for their embedded historical uh, legacy emissions. I, you know, is good luck getting that on the negotiating table. Now, every time somebody says all carbon is equal, the cost of abating carbon is not equal. So what it offsets really do is in many developed or richer countries, they get rid of low hanging fruit, like they add wind and solar. So that cuts down their coal use, or maybe they do a little bit, but they don't actually get rid of the household um, natural gas usage that easily because heat pumps will take time to build out or get rid of steel. So there's much harder to abate emissions for which they say, oh, I'll just use an offset that's only a couple of dollars. And guess what? It's either dodgy and or coming from the carbon budget of the poor. And that's not a sustainable or scalable equilibrium. You have a CEO of a major airplane company, aviation company, saying that I am now carbon neutral and it costs $30 million, the world's largest airline or one of the largest. So if that were true, it would only take, you know, about $24 billion to be carbon neutral for the whole world. Clearly it's not. And so we're playing shortcuts, games. We need to stop doing that. The world needs to get more serious and getting serious for developing countries is very different than getting serious for developed countries. For developed countries, they need to come to true zero without net, without offsets. True zero quicker than 2050. For developing countries, they need to aggressively reduce their trajectory so that their cumulative emissions are lower. They need to improve their distributional aspects for human development because you still have issues of people even lacking access to energy. To close, I'll just mention one analysis. If you give a billion people who don't have electricity a decent amount of Lifeline Plus, more than Lifeline, monthly electricity, entirely from coal, if that would still be only 0.25% of today's global emissions. So if you say that, oh, the poor need to step up, they're already stepping up, sometimes in the worst possible way by not even emitting at all. I think uh, I forgot to speak about something uh, to the, in response to the last question about where do we start uh, in terms of uh, building equitable scenarios. You know, I think it's very, in my opinion on this is very clear that really, if you want these scenarios, we'll have to move away from the IMs. But one thing that one can do perhaps with the IMs is a very simple experiment. What happens when you have higher oil and gas reductions in the developed world? as opposed to coal reductions in the developing. Just change your constraints a little bit. See if it is possible to do this. 
just you know put in higher prices for one uh, resource versus the other your uh, results will be different see how the mitigation burden is distributed differently it's just there is a reason why you don't make these scenarios uh, make these assumptions in the scenarios i think because this is the entire process of modeling and you know constructing models and constructing scenarios is not uh, politically neutral it is a very political uh, enterprise and i think we should be very open and frank about the fact there are political interests that are embedded here who creates these global scenarios versus uh, you know who who creates the global models versus the scenarios there's a huge uh, uh, debate that is currently going on about the fact that it's not something that is uh, exclusive you know there are some models for example that are open access there are people from anywhere in the world who can download these models and uh, run parts of them on their computers they'll run faster of course if you have higher computing capacities anybody can uh, do scenarios it doesn't have to the scenarios don't have to be restricted to those who actually construct the models but the models themselves are constructed almost exclusively in the global north uh right almost all of the models are in the global north there is one iim that is uh, from uh, brazil but that is also based on one of the the models the one of the european models but almost all of them over 90% of the scenarios come from the models constructed in the global north a large number of them funded by uh particular uh, political entities in the global north so you have there are uh assumptions that uh, certain you know interests would like to see there are other assumptions that they would not like to see so if we are to uh, construct equity based scenarios we must do so with our own models we as in the global south we I, that's what i mean by we uh, i don't think it is going to be possible uh, within this larger framework because there is simply no interest in asking those questions if you want to ask questions and, and you said this uh, sandeep uh, earlier that modelers themselves have said this they respond by saying but it's not our job to achieve equity our job is to achieve 1.5 at the lowest possible cost fine then if it is the job of uh, modelers uh, in the global south perhaps it is something that we should do unfortunately we are severely constrained by resources just as in everything else in terms of energy access etc etc even in terms of constructing our own models Uh, especially the kind that will be let's say vetted and accepted by the ipcc for its assessment we are constrained by resources i just spoke about one constraint there are multiple things i also think that uh, you know in terms of uh, opportunities networking there's a huge influence of northern scholarship in terms of uh, what uh, scholars in the global south would want to do the kind of questions uh, that they would want to research pose and answer you know rahul and i probably uh, are extremely unpopular in your this particular podcast might be extremely unpopular because it's a it's an unpopular opinion in india uh, you know you don't have two people who talk about uh, not setting a date for coal phase out and still uh, talking about uh, you know urgent climate action you don't get that uh, you know very often in india simply because it doesn't pay to have these opinions and that is a serious uh, question it's one one part of it is uh, pay the other is you also have the, a lot of people in the global south that have bought into the discourse the discourse is a powerful one the one of the global north it's not something that you can easily uh, simply counter by you know two people sitting 
uh, in Bangalore or some other parts of uh, India and uh, producing papers. Uh, it, it is, it's a very powerful narrative to counter and it's difficult for me to convince my own students sometimes to take up some of these questions because they wonder where they will then go for a postdoc. Who's going to accept them? Who's going to publish their papers? It's all a, a vicious cycle. It's not that easy to pinpoint one particular or, or even a set of reasons for why we don't do this in India. And I think there are a lot of issues that we must resolve if we are to actually push back on the question of equity in the markets. Rahul, take us home. <laughs> well, for this question only, because home should actually be when we solve the larger problem. But I think Tejal has highlighted just the fact that it's both a systems problem as well as just a sheer lack of enough people doing it. So the scaling problem is the first one. We don't have enough people who are actually trained to do this, who actually want to do this and then are getting their stuff out there. So all of these need, of course, more funding. But even if you threw more money at it, it wouldn't be enough. Money is just one necessary but not sufficient condition. I will also make another statement that will be unpopular. We don't have enough quality research being done because people are chasing shorter term things. These are more complex that need longer term view. And it's only PhD students who are at certain types of institutes that even bother working on these because for the rest of them, they're more driven by who's funding the work and industry often or whatever else. So uh, it, we, what research do people do? The top researchers in India, like in you know certain energy systems, do the same research that they would have done had they been sitting in Silicon Valley or Northeast US or Western Europe. It's just they're in a different location, but it's almost identical. So you are not doing as much bottom-up analysis, field-based analysis. Those are hard. Those are different. And unfortunately, those aren't the things that get published in the top journals. And unfortunately, you have a journal bias because you thou must publish in certain journals only to be regarded as a top researcher or maybe get promoted or et cetera. And these are severe constraints that if you do something that doesn't fit in line with the thought leadership in a domain. Um, you have this not just in climate change, you have this in how we look at in, in the finance world, issues of you know austerity and modern monetary theory and so many other things where people sort of are questioning fundamentals of entire ecosystems of thought, but then say, well, the data don't match up because, well, that uh, was just a... A failure of execution, very few people are stepping back and saying, well, is it a failure of our entire fundamental models that we believe in on which a lot of other decisions are predicated? So solving this will take time, effort, and more interactions. So if we could not just get more funding, but more funding that was flexible, because we actually don't know the answers. To, you asked me to bring it home. I think solving climate change is such a wicked problem. Wicked problem is a class of problems in the policy space that don't have a right or wrong. They're about essentially trade-offs. And the only way to solve them is in an iterative manner with multi-stakeholder engagement where you evolve towards uh, what can work. 
the translation I give to people who will understand it from expert domains, engineers and economists, is wicked problems are so heavily over-constrained or under-constrained that you cannot use optimization to come up with, quote-unquote, the best answer. And that's a very heavy hit for someone who's just used to saying, well, let me just optimize and tell you what's best. Nobody knows what's best. We have to keep working on it, whether it's us folks looking at it from a systems point of view or people trying to build better batteries. I mean, a cheaper battery may have materials and resource implications with equity considerations. So is that better? So the old phrase from the IT industry that I learned a long time ago, cheaper, faster, better. Pick any two. Thank you. Wonderful. I think that's a great way to end the podcast. I mean, I could talk about this with you both for hours, but I think that this will become like a five-part series or something. But so I just wanted to thank you both for touching upon, you know, both the issues of scenarios and modeling, but also zooming in on India and talking a bit more uh, on the, you know, the transitions of transitions that's going on. So thank you so much uh, for being here. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Tejal. Uh, thank you, Rahul. And what you said earlier, Tejal, we really do love people who offer uncomfortable opinions. So that's what this platform is is about. So thank you for being frank. Just, just loved hearing both of your views here. And of course, learned so much. Thank you for listening to the India NRGR. Subscribe to this channel to never miss an update. To drop us a feedback, visit our website or write to us at theindiaenergyr at gmail.com. We are on Twitter. You can follow at TIEH underscore podcast and get in touch with the two hosts at Shreya underscore J and at Sandeep Pai with a double I.